If you could have anything from God, anything you want, what would it be? Riches, power, fame, love? Or maybe for you it would be something different. Maybe you want God to change something. Something about you or about your circumstances or your relationships or maybe even our world. What do you want from God? Well, what if I told you that God has something better for us than all of these things. If you have your Bible with you this morning, let's turn together to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. Today and this week in our life groups, we resume our study of Exodus. And throughout the fall, we learned along with the Hebrews about the God who delivers. And before the holidays, we wrapped up part one of our study with the celebration of the crossing of the sea and the liberation of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And now, as we resume the story, we're going to have the chance this winter to learn that God is not only the God who delivers his people, but God is also the God who is with his people. Exodus 15, and we pick it up today in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So imagine the scene. They've now set out from the Red Sea. They've gone three days into the wilderness. And with each passing day, concern is rising in the camp. Day one, no water. Day two, no water. Day three, no water. The need is real. And so is the fear. And then imagine the scene when they come to Merah. And finally, they have found water. And one little taste reveals it's bitter and cannot be drank by the people. You know, sometimes in life, when we face difficult situations, we have a tendency to look at our lot in life. And to determine that it is bitter. I think about another character in scripture who shows us this. It was the woman Naomi in the beautiful story of Ruth. She went away to Moab during a famine. And some very hard things happened in her life. And she comes back to her home in Bethlehem. And the people begin to greet her saying, it's Naomi, it's Naomi. And she says, do not call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara. And then she goes on to list the ways that God has made her life bitter. But here's the thing. The book of Ruth is a beautiful, redemptive story. 
And what she says there in chapter 1 is said not realizing that God has not yet finished writing her story. And God has not yet finished right here in Exodus 15. But we have a tendency as people when things don't go well to do a few things. First of all, we tend to globalize. We look at whatever our current difficult situation is and we extrapolate that to being everything about our lives. We also have a propensity to catastrophize. Oh, this is happening, or this might happen, which could lead to this, to this, to this. And we run in our hearts and minds to the worst possible scenario. And when we do, we forget God. Verse 24 again. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters. And the waters became sweet, bitter to sweet. But oh, how quickly they forgot the one who was with them. The Hebrews have forgotten God's power. It has only been three days since they set out from the sea where they were just celebrating God's miraculous deliverance. And it's probably been about 10 days since the Passover when they were celebrating God's protection, how he protected and spared them, not because of anything that they had done to deserve it, but because God had chosen them to be his people. And so here the wilderness becomes the place for them to learn what it means to know, to walk with, to depend upon, to trust in, and to obey God as his people. Back to verse 25. There he made for them a statute and regulation. And there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Verse 25 speaks of a test, a statute, and a regulation. But what comes to your mind when you think of a test? I think for most of us, something negative comes to mind, probably because of those memories when we were panicked over some test that we had to take in school. But what is the actual purpose of tests? It is to help us see what we have learned and to see what we still need to learn. Over the years, I have heard Brian speak on a number of times about the wilderness school of leadership. And it is often in the wilderness times in life, in the difficult times in life, when we are tested. And right here in Exodus 15, class is in session. And the first test has been given, and the Israelites have failed. And what should happen after you fail a test? Instruction. We still have something to learn. So God tested Israel, we're told, in verse 25. And then in verse 26, he gives a lesson. 
in what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with God as his people. And there's two parts to this plan. He says, give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God. In other words, listen to and listen for God. And second, do what is right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. That's the plan. And then he gives motivation in the end of the verse. Basically, he's saying that life is better in step with God and his plan because God does not want to bring plagues and diseases. He doesn't want us to experience those things. He wants to bring life. For as the end of verse 26 says, for I, the Lord, am your healer. I, the Lord, Yahweh, am the one who heals. And think about Jesus. When he came and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, God's plan, he brought with him life. He brought with him healing and hope and goodness everywhere he went. And that is what Yahweh is trying to teach the Hebrews in this first lesson in the wilderness school. He said it, and now he's going to show it. Verse 27. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. The first test and lesson are now complete, and it is spring break at the resort. 12 springs of refreshing water, abundant refreshing water, 70 date palms, abundant fruit, and here they feast and rest in the goodness of God. So what do you think that Israel should have learned through this first wilderness lesson? What are the takeaways what is it that God is trying to teach them? They, they might apply it going forward. Well, keep that in mind as we move into the next chapter. And maybe also, maybe ask yourself, what are some of the lessons that God has been trying to teach you? Maybe in even some of the wilderness times of life. And how are we doing at retaining and applying the lessons that God has been teaching us through those tests in life. Exodus 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So they leave Elim and they set out into the wilderness and they are on their way to Sinai. And it's now been about a month into their Exodus journey. Verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Same song. Second verse. Verse 2, They grumbled against Moses and Aaron 
Why? Verse 3 tells us. In the first test, it was an issue of thirst. In the second test, it is hunger. And it is really interesting to note that these issues strike right at the core of our legitimate needs. We need water. We need food. We cannot survive without them. But these tests also reveal the patterns of how people tend to respond when they don't get the things that they think they need, the things they hunger and thirst for, be it literally or figuratively. And here, just as at Merah, there is a perceived unmet need and an angry people and leaders under fire. And the statements and accusations made, they are strong. What do we say in chapter 15? There is a human proclivity in times of trial, particularly when we are under stress or we think that we are in danger to globalize and to catastrophize. Notice it here again in chapter 16. Their response is not just about the situation and the current problem that they're facing. Their response is holistic. Verse 3, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. This recalls the suffering and the death of the Egyptians. And now God's own people are saying we would have been better off if we had been them. Their response is holistic. It is also exaggerated. Back in Egypt, they say, we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. Probably hyperbole for a group of former slaves. And their response is not only, uh, is not only holistic, it's not only exaggerated. Their response also claims ill intent. It moves beyond the situation claiming even evil intent on the part of others. They literally say at the end of verse 3 to Moses and Aaron, you have brought us here to kill us with hunger. Wow. What a situation. So what does God do now? Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. Meat in the evening. 
bread in the morning to the full. In verse 3, they claim to have had bread to the full in Egypt. The Hebrew word used in verse 3 comes from the word that is used in verse 8. And we'll see it again in verse 12 where it is God who is promising to actually give food to the full for his people. And notice the wording in verse 4. Then the Lord Lord said to Moses, I will rain bread from heaven. When he uses that word rain, what an image that it brings. Because rain covers everyone. It covers everything. And what will he rain? He will rain bread, but what kind of bread? It will literally be bread from heaven. And so we see these are pictures of abundance and blessing. And God's instruction in verse 4 is gather a day's portion every day. Then in verse 5 he says a double portion on the sixth day. We'll come back to that. But notice what else the Lord says at the end of verse 4. He says that I may test them. Wilderness test number 2. And the wording here is so important that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Here we begin to see God's heart for his relationship with his covenant people to walk with them day by day. Him as shepherd, leader, provider, and healer. Them as a faithful, trusting, worshiping, God-revealing community. And the result will be God's glory and their good. Verse 6, we read, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. God will come and once again powerfully reveal himself that they may know that he is God. And that they may know that he is good. And then in verse 7, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Can I ask you a question? What is one of the leading causes that prevents God's people, including you and I, from seeing his glory and knowing his goodness? What do you think? I would contend it is a grumbling heart. Turn back again for a minute to chapter 15. What was the problem here in Exodus 15? Many of us would say no water. That was the problem. But the text is saying to us, really? And it is trying to get us to reconsider that. Was that place Merah? A place of bitterness and no good water? No, not after God showed them yet again that he was with them and he was for them. That water became sweet because of the goodness and the glory of God. But what is it that kept them from seeing or even looking to that good and glorious God? 
Chapter 15, verse 24. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now here in chapter 16, what is the problem? Well, the Hebrews, and likely most of us, if we were in their shoes, would say the problem is no food. And it's true. If all they have is what they see, and if they only have Aaron and Moses to trust in, they are probably right. They are in deep trouble. But is that all they have? Are Moses and Aaron the only ones they can trust in? Absolutely not. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain bread from heaven. Wow. So again, why didn't they see or even look to that good and glorious God? Verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, let's pick it up again with verse 7. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you are grumble against us? Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Grumblings and grumblings over and over. And notice a really interesting and important aspect of this grumbling. In 1524, they grumbled at Moses. In 16.2, the whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And here is an important lesson for us. When we grumble, our grumbling almost always has two features. First, it is external. Someone else is to blame. We don't like our circumstances. And we quickly look for a target. Who is at fault for our misery? And they quickly become the object of our wrath. And second, our grumbling is horizontal. Where are our eyes when we grumble? They are fixed on our undesirable circumstances. And then they look across to find the source, the one who is worthy of the blame for our misery. But here is what we most often fail to do. We don't look in to consider how the state of our heart 
and our mind might be exacerbating an already difficult situation. And we don't look up to the one who can actually help us in it. That's Israel. In Exodus 15.24 and 16.2, they are being what I call practical atheists, which is a believer who lives in any given moment as though God does not exist or is not all-powerful or is not good. They are looking in. They are not looking in to see the ugly state of their own hearts. And they are not looking up. They are not bringing the reality of the presence of an all-powerful and truly good God into their genuinely difficult circumstances. And Moses points it out. In verse 8, he says, The Lord hears your grumbling, which you are grumbling against him. He calls him out and says, hey, the problem is not with us. Your problem is with God. He is the one who called you out of Egypt to become his people. And he is the one who brought you out in this wilderness and is testing you. And you don't like what he is doing. So take it up with him. So are we supposed to just Grumble to God then? Not exactly. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. We are to bring our prayers, our petitions, our needs to him. But there is a huge difference between grumbling and complaining even to God and casting our cares upon God. And what is the difference? Unbelief. The heart of grumbling is unbelief. It is failing to recognize that God is God and that God is good. It is choosing to believe that I am a victim of chance and circumstance and the actions of others. I am being in that moment a practical atheist. Belief, on the other hand, is to acknowledge the genuine difficulty of our sometimes very hard circumstances but it is also to simultaneously believe and acknowledge that God is with us and that God is for us and that God is able to help us to walk in our circumstances no matter what we face. Grumbling seeds and feeds unbelief. Faith releases the Spirit. And sets us free to trust in the one who is with us even in horrible circumstances. Now, here are the Hebrews grumbling against their leaders. But in reality, they are grumbling against God because right now they don't like or want his plan. So, what does God do about it? 
he shows them himself. He reminds them, I am right here. First, through Moses, he promises provision, manna in the morning, quail in the evening, that they may know that the Lord is leading them and that they may see his glory. Verse 6 and verse 12. And second, by manifesting himself. Look again at verse 10. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. That they look toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The pillar of cloud has been with them. But somehow God now manifests his glory more powerfully within the cloud. It hearkens forward to what he will do on the mountain, on Sinai, and to what he will do in the tabernacle. And it raises the question, why? Why does God do this in the pillar of cloud? I believe it's because God is trying to teach his people that he is with them. Uh, hey, y'all, I'm here. I am here. The eternally existent, all-sufficient I am is here with you, even in your most difficult struggle. What is the point of testing. It is learning. And what lesson are they and we to be learning? It's that God is with and for his people. And that changes everything. Verse 12. At twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Even in the midst of deserts, even in the midst of true need, even in the midst of suffering and struggle, God is. And he is able to enable us to even have joy in the midst of life's most difficult circumstances if we will look to and trust in him. And he wants to continually remind his people of this that they might permanently learn these lessons. So God brings to them the provision of bread, and he also brings the rhythm of rest. Verse 13. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness... There was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. Now, when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little. But when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. And he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. 
And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning. Every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. God was faithful. And he did, in fact, rain down the bread of heaven upon them. Psalm 78 calls it the bread of angels. And it was unlike anything they had ever seen before. And notice, too, verse 18. He who gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. God gave them exactly what they needed, and it was his miraculous provision as evidence of his abiding care for them. So verse 21 emphasizes once again, they gathered it morning by morning. But before that, there was another test, another learning opportunity in this. God said to gather it each morning. In verse 19, he says, let no man keep any of it until morning. But in verse 20, we are told they did not listen. Some of them tried to hoard it and store it. And they woke up to jars of maggots in their tents. What lesson is there for us in this? Well, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, do you remember what he said that they should ask for? Matthew 6, 11, Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, Lord, provide what we need for today. He never said, give us this life. That we will always have everything we need, want, and more. And to be honest, our American prosperity creates for us a great danger to being able to walk with God. For God was seeking to teach the Hebrews in the wilderness. And Jesus was seeking to teach the disciples in Galilee that our God wants a daily dependent, abiding relationship with him. That is the lesson of the manna. It was to teach them again that God was with them and God was for them and he would take care of their needs each and every day. And not only did God bring the provision of bread, he also created the rhythm of rest. Verse 22, now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he, told, he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as, as Moses had ordered. And it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Incredible. 
If on Tuesday you gathered twice as much and you tried to store it for Wednesday, you ended up with a stinky tent full of maggots. But if on Friday you gathered twice as much and you stored it for Saturday, hey, then all is good. Amazing. How? Why? Again, God is teaching his people what it means to be his people and to live not only dependent upon him, but also in rhythm with him. In verse 23, we find the first occurrence of the word Sabbath in Scripture. And this will be more fully defined for Israel in the coming months. But here Moses shares God's plan for the six-on, one-off rhythm. And it is actually not at all new. For God first introduced this concept in Genesis 2, 2 and 3 in his own creation of the world when God himself rested on the seventh day and sanctified that day and set it apart. And so God provides enough food the day before the Sabbath to last for two days. And in so doing, he provides a rest as a gift to his people. But here, too, the lesson must be learned. Verse 27, it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And so this, too, becomes another test and another opportunity to teach the Hebrews and us what they and we need to learn about how we can trust in him. Verse 28, then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. And our chapter closes with a call to remember what God has done. That we might remember the lessons that he was seeking to teach Israel. Verse 31. The house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white. And it tastes was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah, about two quarts, for 40 years. Six days a week, God provided the bread of heaven for his people. And just as incredibly as it came, so it went. In Joshua 5, right after they begin to eat the produce of the land, 
Because now God is providing something even better for him. The land which he had promised to them. And so the Lord calls them to put some of the manna in a jar and keep it before the presence of the Lord, which will eventually be in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. Why? Because they are to remember. We are to remember. You see, true tests in life are not for getting grades by cramming information that will quickly be forgotten. They are for learning that we might grow and change and experience the better life that God has called us into. He took them out of Egypt to give them something better. But that something better will not, it cannot be experienced if they don't learn the lessons of the wilderness school. And the most important lesson is that God himself is the greatest treasure we could ever have. And in Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses says it well. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. At the beginning of the message, I asked you, what you want most from God. If you could have anything you want. Well, I have come to learn something that was true of me as a young Christian. Sometimes still is. But I don't think I even understood it back then. What I think I really wanted was a God who would make me and my life such that I no longer needed God Back in the early 90s, I used to like to watch Star Trek. And one of the most repeated phrases on that show was, beam me up. And on the ship, the officer would energize and a person could go instantaneously from the planet below up to the ship above and soar high away above everything. And I remember so many times saying in essence to God, beam me up. You want me to be a different kind of person. I want to be a different kind of person. Well, energize. Why not just make me instantaneously terrific? And the answer is because if he did, I would have never learned to live life with God. We are all so prone toward independence and the temptation to self-directed and self-empowered lives under our rule and reign. But God wants to progressively teach us to learn that he is with us and he is for us and we never have to go it alone. We literally have the God of the universe to look to, to trust in and to depend on 24 7 365 the problem is that far too often we are focused more on a life from god 
than a life with God. Sometimes we just rather use God as a genie in the sky to make all of our problems and go away and to meet all of our needs. But he wants so much more. He wants us. He wants relationship with us, life with us. And if we will learn the lessons of the wilderness school, then we will begin to find an entirely different kind of life. Experiencing his provision and living according to his rhythm. And the result can be such greater joy, hope, peace, and rest, no matter what storms are blowing outside. From God or with God? Which one do you want? Jesus, thank you that you want us. Thank you that you're not just a a genie that we occasionally get wishes from to solve problems or meet needs. Thank you that you are an ever-present help in every time of trouble. Thank you that you promise to never leave us and to never forsake us. Thank you that you are so good. Thank you that we can know you. We can depend upon you. We can enjoy you both now and forevermore. Teach us the lessons you are trying to teach Israel in the wilderness that we might learn to trust you and abide with you. In Jesus' name we pray.